Hello, hello. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We are here today to break down the Miami Marlins farm system as part of our BA Top 10 Prospects podcast series. And to do that, I am joined by Josh Norris from wonderful Raleigh, North Carolina. Josh, you've done the Marlins now. This was your second year doing the system, correct? Oh, no, it's my first year doing this because uh, I remember talking to Matt at one point and saying, you know, we, we were trying to find someone to do it. And I said, you know, virtually all of their player development staff is former Yankees. And I've done the Yankees staff for the Yankees list for a decade now, just about. So why not? I know all these guys. Why not? So I said, all right, I'll just take the fourth team. Yeah, and Josh, this is a really interesting organization. Obviously, last year at the hiring of Kim Ang, they made history hiring the first female general manager. But something that has predated even the Kim Ang regime is the Marlins have very kind of quietly, and we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating, been one of the best organizations at identifying and developing young pitching. A lot of organizations get talked about as being the elite at this, right? You have Cleveland, you have the Dodgers, you have the Brewers. I feel like the Marlins don't get enough credit for how good they've been at identifying young pitchers, whether it's in trades as prospects in the draft or internationally and developing them into successful major leaguers. Look at Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez, both guys acquired in trades Lopez when he was very, very young, Trevor Rogers, the NL rookie of the year runner up. He's a homegrown draftee. Uh, You've looked at guys like in years past that they've acquired through a number of different avenues, Caleb Smith, Zach Gallon, Nick Anderson, Trevor Richards, all Marlins who they traded away to get some other players. So this has just been a really, really, really good organization at acquiring pitching and developing it from all avenues. And now you look at their top 10, five of their top six prospects are pitchers. Four of them are in the top 100 and the last of them would be in the top 100 if he didn't have Tommy John surgery. Again, this is a team that needs to find some bats, but I feel like when you talk about the ability to just develop effective starters, I mean, the Marlins are right up there with, with, with the best of them. Yeah, it's, it's silly. I mean, just kind of an anecdote. In the fall league this year, this past year, I was talking to someone uh, about the Marlins, and I said, you know, we do this thing where we have um, – projected 2025 lineups and to tell you how good it is their 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 system and their current big league pieces max meyer's not in their rotation and he's not their closer either like that's how strong it is if you told me in 2025 there which it probably won't be their rotation was going to be sandy alcantara trevor rogers pablo lopez yuri perez Sixto sanchez no room at the end for max meyer or jake eater or Edward Cabrera, who we have listed as a closer. I mean, that just that doesn't speak anything anything poorly about them as a prospect. It's just that's five spots. <laughs> that's five really good guys. I don't know what to do with you at that point. You know, it it, it just seems weird that you don't have like your number five ranked prospect in your projected 2025 lineup, but it's for good reason. Yeah, again, there's a lot of really, really talented arms here, some in the majors, some in the high minors, some in the low minors. And that takes us into the number one prospect in this system, Yuri Perez. You mentioned Sixto Sanchez. He's someone that 
was the number one prospect in the system for a couple of years after coming over in the JT Ramuto trade, had a really, really good rookie season in 2020, missed all of 2021. He's had injury issues for a while. Edward Cabrera, another very, very talented right-hander, made his major league debut last year, another guy who's been on top 100s for years now. Yuri Perez is kind of the, the new kid on the block, so to speak. What propelled him into the number one spot over these two, as well as guys like Max Meyer and Khalil Watson, who were, were very, very highly touted first-round picks? What is it about Yuri Perez that's so special? I mean, first of all, just talking to their guys, it they speak about him differently than they do those other guys. Just the 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 air with which they speak about Yuri Perez is the ceiling is as high as his six foot eight frame. You can hear it when they talk, and it's hard to encapsulate it just on a podcast without having a recording or something uh, about the way they talk about what this guy could be. And then the performance. I mean, I, I, I struggle to wrap my head around the idea of a guy who's 18 years old, hasn't thrown a pitch professionally, gets jumped to low A to start his career. Not that there were a whole lot of options outside of extended spring training to begin his career and just shoved, absolutely shoved and carved and was incredible from day one. And you, Take the variables that are involved with Yuri Perez. The fact that he's 6'8", which, you know, usually there's some growing pains, figuratively and literally, around trying to get all of your, your long limbs to work in sync. Didn't seem to have those this year. And you, you think about that, too, where that usually manifests itself is the ability to throw strikes. Well, this year, the low-A Southeast had the auto zone, the auto strike zone, the automatic ball strike system, which means... He was throwing strikes to a laser-guided strike zone, which at least in the first half of the season was 17 inches, no more, no less. There was no outside corner. There was no black of the plate. There was, there was no give for these things. So he was hitting that zone with regularity. And it wasn't just, you know, pounding in the middle. He was throwing quality strikes and getting a variety of hitters. Like that first two, three, four months of the uh, low-A Southeast season was just a bouillabaisse of – weirdly overqualified or underqualified players in that league. I mean, you had guys with solid, you know, college pedigrees facing an 18 year old kid who, again, I, I think one of the most amazing stats about this guy is he was 18 to start last year and he's going to be 18 to start this year. He'll be 18 for like two weeks uh, into the regular season um, 2022. So this was a guy who should have been a high school senior and he's coming in and just, carving and it's not just it's not just control it's command and it's really good stuff it's a potential 70 fastball we have it down as a potential plus change average-ish maybe a little tick tick better curveball and plus control and that's an incredibly high ceiling for a young guy with all the variables and then you throw in the fact that the marlins beyond you mentioned that they develop pitching they did a really good job finishing off the development of sandy alcantara too who's not six eight but he's like six six so that's there's track record there. There's develop. There's guys there who know how to develop pitching, and there's the raw talent. And this was closed. We had a debate uh, for weeks or so. Uh, we put this to five pro scouting directors, and the vote was three-two in favor of Yuri. And I was as much as I ever banged my hand on a table for anybody. Uh, I was banging my hand on the table for Yuri just because I've been hearing it all year, and just has the potential to be a nasty, nasty man. 
Yeah, one of the things you talk about the age, and I think it's important to just keep this in perspective. So the Marlins signed him for two hundred thousand dollars during the twenty nineteen international signing class. That was the same signing class as Jason Dominguez and Robert Poussin. And you think about those two who got the highest bonuses in the class. They were tied for the highest bonus at five point one million dollars. Poussin went up to low A this year and was just, as we talked about on the A's podcast, just not ready for the level. Just completely overmatched, developmentally, physically, all of it was just not ready to be there. Jason Dominguez had to stay and extend his spring training for a little bit, eventually got to low A, and, you know, held his own, did okay. Yuri Perez posted a 1.61 ERA and 15 starts at the level, then went up to high A and had five really good starts to finish off the year. Just, just putting perspective, he's the same age as these guys. And I mean, his performance was just so far beyond what, what anyone really expected. But when you compare him to where he is compared to the rest of his international signing class, it really makes it that much more special. He was the youngest player in professional baseball to open the season and just performed like a guy who's 21 years old. And we did miss, I, 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 we were missed, we did miss one really good 18 year old in that league. Alexander Ramirez for the Mets played really well at that level. And again, we talked about, you know, you talked about Poisson out in, uh, in Oakland and Dominguez and Ramirez. Again, none of these guys outside of Yuri had seasons that really, you know, jump off the card and do all But you know what? I don't know how many high school seniors you're going to pluck from around the country right now and drop them into low A and have anything much better. I mean, a lot of those guys are going to just, you know, foul themselves. Uh, this, is, this is remarkable that these kids were able to perform at that level with taking a year off. Now take, again, we're talking about a, a high school senior. Now imagine you take a high school senior and you say, oh no, you're not playing your high school junior year. And then you're playing as a professional. That's difficult. And this guy handled it with absolute, just mind boggling aplomb. I, I love this picture. And <laughs> I would have sold my soul to see his last start, which was against it, was, it turned out to be a clunker. So it would, would have been like most of the other times I sell my soul to see a pitcher he clunks. But it was uh, him and Daniel Espino uh, matched against each other in, I don't remember if it was in Lake County or Beloit, but that's where they were. And it was a nice, nice match to end the year. There was another one where I wanted to see where it would have been rained out, which is how it worked. He faced Daytona, and they got, to, got two at-bats against Ellie De La Cruz, who is my other man crush. Uh, and I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of Ellie love out there, but uh, he got, he struck him out in one at bat and Ellie tripled in the other at bat and it rained and the game was over. And then Perez got promoted like a, a week later. So it is what it is, but there's point is I will do very bad things to get to see Mr. Perez in person. I think there's a good chance I could I could see him in Los Angeles this year. Uh, futures game, not the All-Star game, to be that, clear. Right. Yes. No, he's not, I'm, I'm not calling a trade to the Dodgers or Angels and then making the big league debut. To yeah. be clear, we were talking about the Futures game. Yeah, it was funny. During our uh, Top 100 process, uh, again, we send out our list to officials all over the game, uh, mostly high-level officials, GMs, assistant GMs, pro scouting directors, you know, big-time decision makers. And I got one of the, the most fun pieces of feedback I thought about Yuri Perez. This is from a, a high-level uh, official in one very prominent organization who said, I'm so mad seeing him as high on the list as you guys have him because we tried to get him in a trade last year, and I wish we had pushed harder. Again, that there's a lot of people who like this guy for good reason. And, you know, I think looking from 
kind of the outside, you might think, oh, Sixto and Edward Cabrera were every bit as highly touted pitchers and they've done it at higher levels. So maybe they should be ahead. But, but I, as we went through this process, I definitely started to see, okay, this is why Yuri Perez is number one of this group and, and understanding that there absolutely was some justification behind it. I do want to pivot into Sixto and Edward Cabrera because, again, these are two pitchers who have been on top 100s many years in a row. Uh, Sixto, we saw have, again, a really, really strong rookie campaign in 2020, but just did not stay healthy and get on the mound in 2021. And, and that has been a long time concern with him. Then Edward Cabrera has always gotten kind of some interesting reviews where, where you see it and look, you watch him, you see the body, you see the stuff, and it's very, very easy to get very, very excited about. One of the things with him is he has this 96 to 98 mile an hour fastball but he really, really struggles to put it in the strike zone. And a lot of times you'll see him, you know, go really, really change up heavy kind of pitching backwards. And it's like, you're 90, you know, you're 96 to 98 plus velo, you know, you want to really use that thing, but because he can't command it that well, it kind of shies away from it. So both these guys, the talents in there, they're still young, but there are questions about, how much are they really going to get out of it? What are they going to be in your discussions with evaluators, both inside and outside the Marlins organization? Ultimately, what were the types of things you were hearing about these two and how did you end up stacking them up the way you did? Well, I mean, to be honest, there wasn't much to say about six you know, nobody saw him. He didn't throw a pitch. He was constantly rehabbing. So there wasn't who saw him. You know, if you, if you told me, well, if you told me at the end of the 2021 handbook cycle, that I'd be writing about Sixto Sanchez, I'd be confused for a couple of reasons because A, I would be learning right then that I had the Marlins. And I mean, he was, he's, well, where do we got here? He's 12 innings, well, really 11 and a third innings from graduation. If you had told me I didn't, he didn't get 11 and a third innings in the big leagues this year, I thought COVID had had a super resurgence. There was no 2021 minor league season or major league season. So it really wasn't much to say. I mean, I'm putting him there as on, on the, on the strength what he did in the big leagues yeah there's a lot I mean, if you told me that he was never the same again i believe it but i don't have any evidence that that will happen just he was really really good in the big leagues he's had a really strong pedigree i can't kill him so you leave him there and you hope for the best um and if i stack him and edward cabrera together i think Sixto uh showed more uh let's say higher level weapons than did Edward in his time in the big leagues, granted Edward's time in the big leagues, Cabrera's time in the big leagues. Um, wasn't great. It didn't show the full picture of what he could be. There's still room for more seasoning there, especially on the control command front. But Sixto showed the markings of at least, you know, a number two type starter in the big leagues. So that's why I'm kind of banking on him coming back as this year. Uh, if and when we, we get there <laughs> to the big league season this year. And I'll, I'll just put it out there too. I moved heaven and earth to get Sixto Sanchez in a fantasy league this year. Should have, should have left heaven and earth where they were, apparently. So anyway, especially because he was never faced a place on the IL officially, I don't think. Um, but anyway, point is, Sixto, um, you're, you're banking on what he did in the past and hoping for the best. One of the things about Edward Cabrera that jumped out to me as we were diving into some data during the top 100 process, he has the lowest fastball strike percentage of any pitcher that made the top 100. And his number at 59% was well below what you want to see from someone in the upper levels in the minor leagues. And obviously, again, there's high level weapons here. The changeup is really good. The breaking ball has been really good. And the fastball, again, the velo's there, but I mean, 
no matter what, you have to command your fastball to be effective in the major leagues, especially if you want to be a starter in the major leagues. Where kind of is he with his fastball development? Because at the end of the day, that's going to determine more than anything whether he's a starter reliever and, and how effective he's going to be. We, we did see him get hit a lot in the major leagues in his pro debut. But again, there's a lot of pitchers who come up, get hit a little bit their first time around, make adjustments, and they're fine. What are we looking at here, and, and, and how is he going to improve this? Well, first of all, I'm just looking at my report that I wrote on him, and one note at the end of his report is he just needs to throw the pitch more, fastball that is. He threw it 26% of the time in AAA, which is kind of crazy when you think about a fastball. Um, but he also just needs more time, more seasoning, more reps. I mean, I'm just doing the math here. This It's 26, 29, that's 60. 75, 81. He's got 81 innings total above uh, low A. He never threw a pitch at high A, it doesn't look like. Um, although I'm looking at just the 2021 year. There's, there's a low A rehab in there. Um, so it's just more seasoning, I guess. That's really all it is. And he needs to stay healthy, too. He's had, he hasn't had the injury issues that are severe as severe as Sixto, but they've been there. Like, he did miss a chunk of the year this year with, uh, I think it was biceps injuries. So. I really, it's really as simple as that. He just needs more refinement. It wasn't, I don't think it was, he was ready for the big league this year. Yeah. And again, you see, you see it there again, the body, the stuff, um, as you mentioned, throwing the fastball 26% of the time at AAA is certainly a number that's surprising and seeing if he can improve the command and use it a little more. I think that can really unlock something special here. And again, you do give the benefit of the doubt to the Marlins and their pitching development. Again, we talk about what's wrong here. There's a lot right here. He was a clear cut top 100 prospect. And I know I'm going to be curious to see what steps forward he can take moving into 2022 and likely will end up getting more time in the major leagues. Josh, Max Meyer and Jake Eater were both at AA Pensacola for most of this year. Max Meyer got up to AAA at the end of the season. And one of the interesting things was Meyer being the third overall pick and the first rounder was the guy that was seen as the better prospect. Eater was the fourth rounder out of Vanderbilt in 2020, had been kind of inconsistent a little bit in his college career. But you actually went out to Pens- uh, you saw both these guys, I should say, on the road. You weren't in Pensacola when you saw them, but you did see both of them in person. And a lot of the reviews early on were that Eater was actually kind of moving ahead of Meyer in terms of the prospect pecking order. Both good, but, but Eater moving ahead. Ultimately, and unfortunately, Jake Eater suffered an elbow injury that resulted in Tommy John surgery in August. Uh, Meyer finished the year very, very strong. I think a couple people missed just how good he was at the very end and when he got to AAA. How did you kind of go about stacking these two up? And again, clear cut, you know, top six prospects in the system. But but what were the discussions like with evaluators regarding these two? Well, it was really easy. I mean, the one had Tommy John surgery, so he's going <laughs> behind the one who's healthy. That, that was really it. If you if he if Eater has a healthy elbow and you know, doesn't and gets to AAA and does similar things. I think he goes ahead of Max Meyer, but he didn't, so he doesn't. Um, but you're right. The, be- the the reviews on Meyer to begin the year were, I won't say bad, but they were just kind of, there's something missing here. The, the stuff was a little, that's a term I like to use, a spicy vanilla. It wasn't, it wasn't vanilla, but it was a little bit of kick to it, but it wasn't certainly what you saw um, as a collegian. But just like with, with Yuri, I'll throw in this wrinkle. Max Meyer's uh, last collegiate season in 2020 was supposed to be the year he was stretched out to be a starter. Obviously didn't happen. 
he had like three or four starts and then you know the world ended um so this was the year where he gets gets to stretch out the starter and he's learning for the first time how to manage that stuff over five six years if you had told him to go you know let it eat for an inning and change you know at the end of a bullpen might have been in the big leagues to end the year like he his stuff is out of the bullpen uh, with minnesota was freak nasty and especially that slider which i think i think i've told this story on podcast before i didn't i know he pitched for one of the years or maybe two of the years at a collegiate national team and i you know my mo at for collegiate national team is to set up my cameras and then go back to the office in the world where people were at the office uh, and just edit the footage there. I don't have to sit there and melt for nine innings, especially when it's mid-season prospect time. But I'm cutting it up and I'm going, what in all holy get out is this? And it's Max Meyer's slider. That is some kind of wicked right there. And you didn't see that at the beginning of this year. It got better toward the end. But that, that signature slider, I mean, the start I did see, you saw some that were pretty good some that were not good and some that were that slider. There was a couple that were that slider, but in that outing that I saw, oddly enough, he was relying on his third best pitch, his changeup, because he was facing a Chattanooga team that was to be generous, not very good outside of uh, Jose Barrero um, and Mark Colasvari. He's pretty decent, but the rest of that, you know, the rest of that, that, lineup was and he was throwing okay changeups and getting out of jams i mean that that trip i went to see on was was grayson rodriguez uh i saw some mets hitters and then eater and meyer versus lodolo and hunter green and uh that was the clunker tour of 2021 because i think everybody but green gave me a meh start or they left by injury anyhow uh yeah meyer's line that day was pretty good but his stuff was okay and that's part of his development, learning to pitch through it. And I did a story about that. Those guys who are these, these heralded pitching prospects who have to learn how to fail. Um, and and I, I think it's failing is a strong word. Learn how to pitch without their best stuff. And that's what he did that day. So that's a key part of his development. I guess this is a long way of saying, you know, Meyer and Eater are neck and neck. And the one has to rehab his el- elbow and will miss the entirety or more, more than likely the entirety of the 2020 two season yeah i want to dive into Meyer a little bit and it's interesting and looking back through our notes and what you saw in person again early in the year what came up a lot was like you said the stuff just wasn't as good the fastball is more 92 94 and did not play very well in the zone the slider was not the 70 pitch it was reputed to be but even when he didn't have his best stuff this was still a guy who jumped to double a in his first full season really as his professional debut and was still finding ways to get outs, finding ways to be effective, which I think speaks a lot to his competitiveness and his smarts and his ability to really just pitch. And then again, I think a lot of people, I've seen this happen a few times with pitching prospects. I think back a few years ago, Cal Quantrill is my favorite example of this. He was really struggling in double A a few years ago and people just kind of wrote him off and they completely missed that he went to triple A at the end of the year and dominated and his stuff came back at the end of the year. And all of a sudden he was a legit prospect again, not that he was ever not a legit prospect, but people kind of just kind of moved on after seeing what they saw in the middle of the season and weren't paying attention to how he finished. And there's a little bit of that. I feel like with Max Meyer and I actually uh, was talking to some evaluators about this who said, we see it have both in terms of uh, scouts we talked to and also pro scouting directors who said, when you saw him middle of the year, you were going to come away unimpressed. 
But at the end of the year, if you went back in to see him, you saw it. That's when the fastball had the velocity and the life. That's when the slider started looking like a seven pitch. And you look at his final three starts, he absolutely dominated, uh, gave up one run, 16 innings, 24 strikeouts against just two walks. And two of those three starts came at AAA. So I, I think that there was this weird dichotomy of, you know, okay, the numbers were good, but performance wasn't, you know, maybe his prospect stock is down. Um, but the people who saw him at the very end, you saw that it was in there. And, and I do think that in some ways now, he actually might be a little underrated. That could be. I mean, yeah, you get to find out next year or this year, whatever you want to call it, which, which of those guys it is. I mean, we'll see. He's going to come out. I'm sure he's going to be at Jacksonville this year and get a chance to have some more seasoning or maybe he gets a chance to, well, I, I'd say there's very little chance that he gets to win a job out of big league camp because I think big league camp's going to wind up starting after the minor league season. But, um, you know, it, we'll see. You're right. This, the last two starts at Jacksonville were really darn good. Just look at those numbers, 17 strikeouts, two walks, 15 and a third strikeouts per nine. It was, he got better as the season went along. And it goes back to what I said. You had, he had to learn how to be a starter again. He had to learn, or again, at all. He had to learn how to maximize what he had and be the best version of himself, something that he didn't get a chance to do uh, in his, what would have been, well, what was his draft year at Minnesota. There's a lot of weird elements, and you're right. He did go to double A, which is a tough assignment for anyone, but, any, but certainly anybody, you know, coming out of the shoot as a pro, even with a, a college pedigree. All right, Josh, we've hit on most of the guys at the top of the system, but there is some depth here and some intriguing players, particularly on the position side. I want to dive into them with you, but first we're going to take a quick break. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And we are back breaking down the Miami Marlins farm system with Josh Norris. All right, Josh. So we talked a lot in the intro and during the first half of this podcast about the Marlins pitching, what they have in the major leagues, what they have in the minor leagues. And and again, this is a very pitching heavy farm system at the top. Five of their top six prospects are all pitchers. There are some intriguing position players below them, though. 
And I think first we have to address as much as the Marlins have had success developing pitching prospects, they have really, really, really struggled to develop effective hitters. And as a result, they've had one of the worst offenses in baseball a couple years running now. Uh, we've seen some guys who are highly touted prospects like Lewis Brinson and Monte Harrison uh, just not really click. Jazz Chisholm, who they acquired for Zach Gallen, showed some flashes last year, but also had some struggles. And there's a lot of swing and miss to his game. So in order for the Marlins to ensure that they take advantage of this great pitching group they have, they are going to need some hitters to click, whether it's in trades, free agency. And obviously, given that they're a team that's never really going to have an enormous payroll, developing some homegrown position players is key. I want to start with some of the guys at the lower levels, particularly Jose Salas and Ian Lewis. These were two international signees that went out and had very good first full seasons. And Salas actually got raised to me again during our top 100 process and discussing it with evaluators all across the game as someone who is not worthy of being in the top 100 yet, but is a potential breakout candidate for 2022 and someone that we could see potentially in the top 100 this time next year. What do the Marlins have with these two young international signees? I mean, they have a pair of particularly intriguing up the middle, uh, young Latin players. I mean, there's really no, no more uh, clear way to put it than that. I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I'm, I'm a big believer that you can kind of guess what a team thinks of a guy by the way they move him. And the fact that they gave Salas 27 games, which is one fewer than they gave him at FCL in the low way Southeast as an 18 year old. And he held his own kind of tells me what the, the level of talent they believe he has He's a switch hitter. You've got, you know, you've got some hints of power. You've got, we put him as a potential 55 hitter and 55 power plus runner, potentially average defender, but above average throwing arm as a pretty darn good player. And if your evaluator is probably correct, then that that's a guy who could sneak onto the top 100, you know, if he performs this year, which I assume will be as a part of a, a ridiculously stacked pack of uh, middle infielders in Jupiter with Salas, Lewis, and Khalil Watson, uh, to name a few. I mean, I don't know where they're going to get all those guys, the, the reps they need every day. I'm sure someone's going to wind up at third base, but um, you know, both these guys are really, really talented. They control the bat really well. They do a good job of controlling the strike zone. They've got good, you know, uh, analytic numbers. I'm reading, reading here that I wrote that uh, Ian Lewis, you know, he's got exit velocities up to 110 miles an hour. 40% of his hits this year were for extra bases. I mean, these guys are really, really impressive. There's plenty of work to be done, but you've got the, the, the tool sets to potentially have guys who will fill those roles. Now, granted, I will say, we talk about the lack of maybe bats in the Marlins system or in the Marlins lineup. Jazz Chisholm is pretty good. So uh, they're, that, they've got a really good cluster there up the middle of talent. With, you know, Chisholm, Watson, Lewis, Salas, a uh, little less. Uh, and if you really want some defense, look at Nassim Nunez, who I think might be the best reviewed defender I've gotten all year or I got all year. Like he, Everything was like witch, sorcerer, demon, basically any sort of supernatural creature with a glove on his hand. That's Nassim Nunez. Not so much with the hitting, but uh, he's going to get to every ball and he's going to throw you out every time. Yeah, I know you mentioned that's going to be a really, really intriguing group next year with Khalil Watson, their their top pick in last year's draft, along with uh, with Salas and Lewis 
I actually think that might be one of the most fun potential infields to watch. And I'll be curious to see how they divvy up the playing time and who plays where, because all three of them are very legit prospects and guys who need at bats. And um, yeah, it's something to certainly get excited about in the lower levels of the Marlins system. And Josh, as we talk about the Marlins need for bats, a big part of that is a lot of the guys they've taken high in the draft on the position player side have not panned out. Uh, Josh Naylor, they traded away. Brian Miller has not quite panned out as hoped. Connor Scott really struggled. Finally looked like he was turning a corner last year. They traded him to the Pirates in the deal that brought back Jacob Stallings this offseason. Uh, but the main guy that they really, really need to click here is J.J. Blade. He was the fourth overall pick in 2019, led the nation home runs at Vanderbilt, uh, by all accounts was, was one of the best hitters in that year's draft class, which included Adley Rutschman and Andrew Vaughn. And he just really, really, really struggled uh, from the outset. I remember, you know, the reviews on him and his pro debut, a lot of evaluators, the word vanilla kept coming up a lot uh, at Instructs last year. Again, there, there's just not a lot of people who were really buying it. And then this year at Pensacola, or I should say last year now, I hit 212, 323, 373. Uh, again, it was just not a good season in any way, shape, or form. And the reviews kind of lined up as you would expect with the numbers that, again, the reviews were just not great for a while. And then the folly came around and he made some adjustments. And all of a sudden, this started looking like the guy who was the fourth overall pick. You were out in the fall league and saw him. I was out in the fall league and saw him. And the J.J. Blade who had been described, and even you could see for yourself before, was not the same J.J. Blade that was in the fall league. And even defensively, he made some fantastic plays for me. This was a dynamic, dangerous, impactful player. Now, the caveat is the pitching in the fall league was the worst it's been probably in 15, 20 years. So you don't want to go too crazy over some of the offensive numbers. At the same time, he made real changes. And I mean, it certainly looked really, really good. What do the Marlins have here? What, what, what do you make of J.J. Blade at this point? Well, I'll say like when I was doing the 10 for the Marlins, I knew the first nine on this list were going to be there in some order. 10 took some thinking. I don't like to think. Uh, so 10 was uh, what I looked at, I think, eventually, which, which sold it for me, was the fact that you know he did strike out 101 times. He did hit 212. But he struck out, he walked 64 times. He controlled the strike zone. He has an idea of what he wanted to do. And that's a really good starting point. You know, it's the same idea that people said a few years ago with Trent Grisham when he was in low A and, you know, not doing a whole lot except walking. It was like, okay, well, there's, there's something there. And that's a really big key. It's, it's like, it'd be like if you learn to read before you learn to walk, like it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird building block to start with. And then, but he has it. And then it was a matter of the Marlins hitting people, you know, going to work and doing what they're, what they're uh, paid to do. And they made some changes to him mechanically and it started to, to happen. And you're correct. The, the fall league pitching this year was just north of a jug's gun. You know, it was, it was not great. It was, an, it was a series of iron mics and then like Caleb Killian and Owen White, at least when I was there. And Rorancio um, Contreras, he was legit. Yes, that's true too. He was there when I was there. I'm trying to think because there's some other guys who were really good that I'm going to shortchange who just left before I, I got there. Um, but in any case, yes, he hit everything early and often and constantly while I was there. There were some, the one, one scout uh, smartly noted that he did uh, a lot of damage to both corners while leaving the middle kind of uh, barren of baseballs, as it were. 
Um, but it was certainly better than he showed in double A, which granted there's a lot of uh, pitchers parks in double A. And some people did make the point to me that there was a lot of solid contacts that got knocked down um, in double A, like in, in parks like Mississippi and Pensacola and where have you. Um, but yeah, I, I think starting with the, I, the ability to control the strike zone and you know, have other, other tools outside the batter's box, you know, we have him as a, a plus defender with a plus arm and an average runner, there's still, again, it's, no, everybody's con- concept of time is completely screwed up. Last year was his first full year as a pro in games. I mean, and his first, his first year as a pro was one of the longest seasons you can possibly have. He started in February with Vanderbilt, won the College World Series, then w- skipped over the Complex League and Low A, and went immediately to High A in the middle of August in Jupiter, Florida, where it's either raining or it's 9,000 degrees with 12,000% humidity. The man was gassed. Um, I was actually there for his first pro home run. I got to see his and Adley Rutschman in the same week. Um, but you know, it's, and then you have the pandemic. You, you can't come and you know, give a proper encore outside of the pandemic. So last year was his first full year. He was at double A all year and he had some struggles. It's just not a player I'm ready to write off just yet. Yeah, seeing him in the Arizona Fall League, he's certainly not a player you want to write off. And that actually leads me to the question. With our publishing schedule, the Marlins list came out pre-Arizona Fall League. If you were putting this list together post-Arizona Fall League, would he have been ranked higher? No. Okay. No. I mean, I, again, you're saying that the, the list is um, – you're saying that, that the pitching is still what it was in the Fall League? Yeah. I mean, I, there's, it's hard to kind of split that atom, or any atom, really – um, between which pitching, which, what was really going on there? Was he feasting on just absolutely atrocious pitching or did he make some real changes or a little from column A, a little from column B? I can tell you, he, he really knows what he wants to accomplish. I had a really good conversation with him my first day there and he gets what he wants to do He's a smart cookie. And, you know, this is a guy who, um, I'm just, I'm hoping, he, I'm hoping he proves me right this year when he comes to double A or triple A and gets whatever version of baseball they're going to play this play with this year in triple a and uh maybe you know puts himself on the map as a, a future marlins cornerstone yeah i know i'm certainly intrigued again he played well for you in person he played well for me in person talking to some scouts who saw him out in the fall league they they, they believe a couple even said you know if he maintains this they could see him you know being a potential top 100 guy so uh, it was certainly exciting to see him make a change and really start to show the ability level that i think a lot of people have thought in there i just remember coming out of the draft there were people who said this could be plus hit plus power and just to give you an idea of how far that had fallen uh, some of the reviews on him this year from evaluators seeing him in double A were below average hit fringy power. I mean, he had dropped, you know, two full grades in some people's eyes. So seeing him get back on track was certainly promising. Josh, it, this Marlon. Oh, 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 sorry, go ahead. It's, 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 just to close it, it's the weird phenomenon of he didn't chase very often, but he didn't, he either missed a fair amount or didn't make quality contact on pitches that were in the zone. So, Again, I'll go to the same point I made earlier. Just you, you already have a guy who doesn't chase a whole hell of a lot, but you just need to make the tweaks that allow him to do damage on pitches he should damage. And that's what he started to do in the fall league. 
Josh, this Marlins system we talked about has five top 100 prospects. Jake Eater at number six probably would be a top 100 prospect if he was healthy. We've talked about guys like Jose Salas and J.J. Bladé, who, who some people think could be top 100 guys if they continue progressing as they have. So there is some top-end talent in the system. There is not a lot of depth. And again, some of the depth they have was traded away in the deal for Jacob Stallings. Uh, you see some really interesting players in the lowest levels of the minors who are super young. Dax Fulton and Joe Mack were two guys drafted the last two seasons. But really after that top dozen or so, there is a pretty steep fall off. Who are some guys in the back of the system to maybe keep an eye on? Because even in cases like that, there are always guys who surprise you and pop a little bit and maybe do something. Jordan McCants, shortstop. Uh, surprise, surprise, another shortstop. Um, and I think he could also wind up being in that group at Jupiter next year uh, at some point. He's really, really fast. 70-grade runner. He's got, you know, the, the skills to, play, to hit at the top or the bottom of a lineup. And he probably not going to be a shortstop. But, you know, you got a lot of really intriguing skills to make him, excited, make him an exciting player. Uh, Nick Fortes came along at the end of the year and really did some damage in the big leagues. He could put himself in the position to be like a backup catcher type. Uh, they also acquire Peyton Henry because their catching system or catching uh, depth was not great uh, in the in their system as currently constructed. Um, you know, there's some intriguing Latin guys at the back. Ronald Hernandez. I will not say Ronaldo Hernandez. Ronald Hernandez. Uh, Kevin Guerrero, Christian Rodriguez, they were all at their fall wrap-up minicamp in Miami, uh, which kind of signals again to me that they could be they're, – they're on their radar. They'll, they'll be, they'll be uh, mainstays on their FCL team this year probably. Um, Josh Roberson was a guy that scouts brought up to me. I ranked him 35. Um, he's got really good analytics numbers, and scouts like them. So you, you've got the in-person and the computer looking at them and saying, eh, pretty decent. Um, Bennett Hostetler is a guy that they like internally. Uh, he was a, he was a, I think it's an infielder at, uh, North Dakota state. They're converting him to a catcher and they believe he can hit and he hit pretty decently in low A, which you should do as a collegian. Uh, and then didn't hit as well at high A, but you know, they, they like his, his makeup and his aptitude enough to, to put him behind the plate. So you're right. It's, it's a really good top of the system. Um, not so much toward the back. I think we think, um, but those are some names that I think are the guys who could really pop next year. Yeah. Again, we'll see. There's, there's certainly some, some players here that um, have talent and have some pedigree and just a matter of seeing how they all develop. Josh, before we wrap up, any final thoughts on the Marlins farm system and also this franchise's long-term outlook? Cause again, the point of a farm system is to have a winning major league team. And while they made the playoffs in 2020 with the expanded postseason and, and beat the Cubs in the first round, they kind of fell back this year to fourth place at well under 500. Where do they go from here? And, and how is this farm system going to potentially help them? Well, the problem is they are located in Florida, which is on the Eastern part of the country. And they are in the National League East, which includes the world champion Braves, the, the Phillies with Bryce Harper and Zach Wheeler, the MVP and the Cy Young winner. Yes. A Cy Young contender. Uh, he didn't win, but Cy, he, uh, Cy he, Cy was, he was, yes. he was, he was very highly in the voting behind Corbin Burns. Yes. Uh, yes. And, oh, and then, then the Mets uh, got Max Scherzer before everything stopped. So they're in a very, very, very tough division. So I don't know 
what their path is to contention, but I can tell you based on the, the way their system works, it's built on pitching. Um, and whether that's, I started this by saying, you know, Max Meyer is a really good prospect, but they're so loaded that he's not even in their future, you know, lineup 2025. Some of these guys are going to get dealt. And if they make the correct deals, they can possibly bring back, you know, guys like they, they did with Jazz Chisholm. That's a pretty good deal for, for Zach Gallen right now. Um, if they play this well, they can get more Jazz Chisholm type pieces to supplement their lineup and make themselves more rounded. But it is going to be tough sledding in a division that is built the way it is right now, I think. Yeah, and if the playoffs expand as part of CBA negotiations, that will obviously help. One thing I think is important is, and this has come from talking directly to people in the Marlins organization and hearing it through the grapevine, you know, people who, who say, oh yeah, you know, the Marlins officials, this is what they believe, this is what they're doing. They recognize the lack of bats. It, sometimes we see teams have kind of an overly rosy view and maybe not have um, – an impartial view of the players and their system and how good they actually are. And I think being honest with yourselves about who you have and just being clear out about the level of talent. And that's the first step to success. And the Marlins to their credit, by all accounts, they understand they need a lot more bats in their system than they currently have and a lot higher caliber bats than they currently have. So I think there's at least this clear eyed view of, yes, this is a problem. We need to fix it. And they have the resources to fix it because everyone always needs pitching. And again, we've seen them do this in years past, trading a lot of, of pitching, you know, fines and prospects. Even a guy like Zach Thompson, who was another pitching fine for them, they ended up moving him to the Pirates in the deal for Jacob Stallings. So I think the fact they recognize their weaknesses and they have the resources to fix those weaknesses, I, I do think puts them in a, a pretty good position. And now it's just about getting better guys and developing them better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these guys, the Marlins right now have a really smart group of player development people, and I will shout these guys out whenever possible, a really good group of professional scouts. They've added some incredibly sharp scouts over the last couple of years. They've added some really, really, really good eyes for talent over the next, the last few years who, I mean, that's not something to underrate at all. That. These, these are the guys that help you get the jazz chisms and tell you, and more importantly, tell you which guys they're comfortable giving up. That's, that's the other part of the equation that is not always thought about. I, I think I've said it on a, a thousand podcasts, knowing your own system back and front. So you don't get pantsed in a trade is paramount. If you know that you're that maybe one of your prospects is higher or lower than our industry's perception may be of him, that's really, really valuable because you don't want to have a guy come back and bite you three down, three years down the line in a trade that you should have kept. So I, I, I'd say it's, I, I trust this group of development guys and scouts and executives to make the moves they need to, in order to try to compete in that division. Um, which, like I said, is, is very good. I mean, the, the Braves just won the World Series without Ronald Acuna. I mean, come on. <laughs> and Mike some... Soroka. Yeah, no, there's no and question. Mike Soroka. The, the NL East is, uh, is a very, very good division, and especially with the Mets spending as much as they are. So uh, there's a lot of talent, but again, we'll see what the Marlins are able to do. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your insight as always. Thank you. 
All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America Prospects podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you are listening on. We would love to hear from you. For Josh Norris, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody.